Welcome everyone to the first episode in a new season of podcast, season two of Guardians of the Flame podcast. It's been a real great journey this last year to be putting these together and we're excited about the lineup of guests that we have coming in the next three or four months. Uh, today we're starting with an interview with Professor Robert Enright. Uh, he's an old friend um, going back 20 years and uh, he's talking as you hear about forgiveness and his lifelong study of forgiveness uh, his work in in a university context and with the international forgiveness institute which he started okay let's dive right into the podcast so welcome everyone to the guardians of the flame podcast um it's a real delight to be uh, sitting up here in south belfast to interview professor robert enright from the university of wisconsin in madison um, so welcome, Bob, <laughs> your unofficial name. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Johnny. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. And we've been working with uh, you, Bob, since, I guess, early 2000s. Uh, you've been, to give you, I suppose, a background for those listening, um, uh, Professor Enright is one of the, I guess, foremost scholars in the world who's really not only studied forgiveness but then looked at how it can be applied in very difficult situations and um you've kind of spent your career doing that so we'd love i'd love in the next about hour to look at a little bit why on earth you got into studying forgiveness what is forgiveness and yeah what and what are some of these ways that you've applied it uh, in prisons and schools in belfast um, with the homeless, you said, in Edinburgh. Um, just, uh, you know, forgiveness is a word we use a lot, uh, particularly if you're in the kind of the, the faith-based sphere. But I think often there's a lot of common mis- misconceptions about it. And so it's, it's great to be talking to an expert. <laughs> so thanks, Bob, for giving us your time. Oh, absolutely. Um, so why don't we start with uh, talking about your background, like where are you from and how did you get into studying forgiveness? Well, I studied what we call moral development at the University of Minnesota, where I received my PhD. And moral development at the time, in the 1970s and 80s, was primarily centered on how children and adolescents come to think about justice or fairness. And it was more not doing what is fair, not creating a better world, but understanding it. And I was very obedient. And I had grants and publications. And shall I say, I was a fair-haired boy because I was obedient to the system. And I woke up one day and I asked myself the question, who is being positively impacted by my research? And I gave myself an honest answer. About four of my academic friends with whom I collaborate and meet at conferences about once a year, then we pat ourselves on the back and off we go. And I realized it was making an impact only to those who say this is worth studying. So in my own expression, I threw all of that work over a cliff, and I never went back to it and read another word of it. But you have to remember, I'm at what they call a publisher parish university, and so I didn't have a new topic. And so I asked the question, what in the area of morals or values or virtues might make a real difference in people's lives. And when I gave that serious thought, of course, being under pressure at a university that expected me to continue with research, I thought of what we call the flip side of justice, which is injustice. And I asked myself the question, what happens when we've been crushed by injustice? How do we stand up again? How do we begin to thrive as persons and in our relationships and in our communities? And the word forgiveness kept coming up for me. And so I thought it was a bit odd because I had never heard of forgiveness in the social sciences, but I thought this sounds so terribly important. I'm sure there's a lot and I just missed it. 
So this was 1985. So I went to the library. In those days, it was very primitive. You actually had to walk to a library to do a computer search. And so I asked the librarian to find everything she could on research regarding the topic of forgiveness in all of the social sciences, psychology, education, anthropology, sociology, political science. And after about an hour, she came back with a blank sheet of paper. And she said, I can't find anything published on research on forgiveness. And at the same time, a friend of mine who is an industrial psychologist, not an academic, did the same search because he wanted to talk about forgiveness within industry at the University of Kansas. And he came back with a blank sheet of paper. So we had two looks and there was nothing. So I said, this is for me. I had no idea where I was heading with this. There was no precedent like there was with justice development. So in 1985, in the spring, I started talking with graduate students and a number of graduate students from all over the world said yes, they were interested. I had students from Israel, the United States and Greece and uh, Saudi Arabia and just a real wide variety of cultures and faiths sitting around then on Friday mornings, we called it the Friday Forgiveness Seminar, and that was in 1985, and we started asking three questions. What is forgiveness? How do you go about forgiving? And what happens when you do? And that Friday Forgiveness Seminar, now in 2019, is still going, okay? Mm. Of course, the cast of characters have Mm. changed, but I have been the one who's, the one person, the one voice that's continued all those years. And I was very naive. I thought, well, I found something I think potentially very interesting to the public. We might even be able to heal hearts and heal relationships and heal communities with this. And in my naivete, a firestorm occurred, and academics didn't like what I had to say. The basic thrust at first, for the first few months, was forgiveness is too soft, weak, fuzzy, religious, and it has no part to play in a major secular university. Stop it. My response was, No, thank you. I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to go back to what you want me to go back to because it was killing me, because it was drying me up, because yes, you could write and get grants, but if it's going nowhere, eventually I would have completely burned out because my ideas don't have life. So you weren't interested in benign academia, but in something that actually made a real difference. And I realized that academia while preaching the idea, if you will, of academic freedom, only will let you be free in the areas they've already said are worthy of study. So I had a fight on my hands. One of my students uh, came to me, and she was pale and shook. And she said, I just met a professor in the hall, and he said, don't work with Enright, He has ruined his career with his new topic, and he will ruin your career, and you're never going to get a job in academia. And she looked me in the eye, and she said, is that true? And I swallowed and looked at her and said, it's too new to know you may never get a job. You are taking a chance. And she stuck it out anyway and did a great study on forgiveness, as did many other people. Then a different kind of firestorm happened. Once we started publishing in the area of forgiveness, people who were more religiously based, not within the university, but were in religious organizations, then were saying about me, he's stealing our stuff. This isn't really academic. This is ours, and you really shouldn't be usurping what we do. And then my thought was, 
sorry, but I'm not usurping what you do. I'm not involved in worship services. I'm involved in trying to understand the answer to three questions. What is forgiveness? How do you go about it? And what happens when you do? So I couldn't please anybody. And I stuck it out because I knew forgiveness would actually give life to people. And I guess I had to pay a price for sticking with it. Wow. Um, so, you know, I think one of the, a, a common misconception is exactly what you described, is that forgiveness is something that belongs in the religious sphere. It's something that you do if you have religion, maybe. Um, and what has impressed me about your work is that not only have you made forgiveness accessible to anyone, regardless of faith or no faith, um, but you've also been able to put it to, in the form of curriculum that can be taught practically. So it's not just a kind of a lofty principle that's preached about from a pulpit, but a, a teacher can unpack it to kids as young as five or six, you know. Uh, and um, and so you've you've turned forgiveness and you know from this lofty concept into something very practical and. Uh, that's kind of very inspiring for me to see that. Well, thanks. So we've tried to be very concrete mm. so that anyone who wants to forgive, mm. not pressured into it, but wants to forgive, should be able to do so. But of course, the basic issue is they first have to understand what it is and what it's not. And one of my struggles has been, you have to realize now, I've been studying forgiveness for 34 years, is that many people use the word, as you said at the beginning of this podcast, therefore they simply don't even question their own knowledge of it. But many people think that forgiveness is simply moving on or putting the past behind you. And that's not what forgiveness is. I can put the past behind me because I hate the one who is behind me and I don't want to have anything to do with them. I can forget about it because I don't want it to hurt me. But if they get hit by a bus tomorrow, well, maybe they deserved it. That's not forgiveness. And so forgiveness cannot be just moving on or putting the past behind you because you can do that with acrimony. You can do that with hatred, which can also destroy you. Because so there has to be something different here about what forgiveness is. And of course, my base, remember, at the University of Minnesota as a graduate student in my early days was in moral development. And forgiveness, I have come to realize, which we studied in our Friday Forgiveness Seminar, is that it has a very strong moral basis to that. And by that I mean, it's always and without exception centered in the good. Justice is centered in the good, which is being fair to those with whom you've entered into an agreement, let's say, for payment. If I ask you to build a table for me for 100 pounds, and you do so, and I give you the 100 pounds, I am being fair to you. So I'm exercising the goodness of justice. Forgiveness also is centered in goodness, particularly in the context of others being unjust to you. And when they are unjust to you, when you decide to forgive, you are good to those who are not good to you. And that can take a number of forms. It could be simple civility, where I don't swear at you or growl at you, and we can carry on a conversation. That's not bad. So civility might be part of forgiveness. So might be kindness. So might respect, because I see you as more than your actions that hurt me. And forgiveness in its deepest level is to offer love to someone who's not loving you. And by love, I would go back to the more ancient view of that word in Greece, agape, A-G-A-P-E, which is being in service to the other for their sake. So on the deepest level, when we forgive, we actually are reaching out to the other for their sake and trying to pull them up from the gutter of their own behavior. And when we do that, we do not excuse what they've done. We are good to them despite what they've done is bad. And it'll always be bad. We don't forget. We remember in new ways. 
when we forgive, we do not throw justice away. That's one of the big controversies. People think, well, if I forgive and they've stolen 100 pounds from me, I can't ask for it back. No, when you forgive, you can be good to them. You can be civil, kind, respectful, or even loving and ask for your 100 pounds back. You can forgive and seek justice at the same time. And another big one that people always miss is that when people forgive, they may or may not reconcile with the other. Reconciliation is, doesn't have the moral virtuous quality like patience and kindness and justice and forgiveness. Reconciliation is more of a negotiation strategy between two or more people working back toward mutual trust. You can forgive another and not trust them. If you keep saying, I will meet you, let's have a meeting tomorrow at noon, and you don't show up, and for the next two weeks you keep saying that, and I keep showing up and you don't, I don't have to trust that the 15th day you're going to show up, even though I might forgive you for wasting my time. So one can forgive and offer goodness to those who aren't good to to me, and maybe not reconcile if they won't be trustworthy in their behavior. Yeah. So the, I always remember, I can't remember if it was you made that or if someone else made that distinction, which was helpful for me, that forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. Um, that, you know, you can forgive a dead person, um, right. uh, but you can't obviously reconcile with a dead person, you right. know. Um, what do you think is the... What is happening psychologically when, for instance, you you forgive someone who, you know, a parent who now has passed away, but you realize you're carrying this bitterness, you know, yes. they, they are very alive in your thoughts, you know, okay. the, the, what is happening when you kind of release them and choose to forgive? Okay, well, that was our second question at the Friday Forgiveness oh, Seminar. Yeah. The first one was, what is forgiveness? We just answered that one. It took us about a year. We're slow thinkers, I think. <laughs> but we had to work out all these nuances. Mm. So forgiveness is being good to those who aren't good to you. Plus, it's not excusing, forgetting. It's not abandoning justice. And it may or may not be reconciling. Then our second of three questions is, how do you go about it? And we have found a pathway of forgiving. Uh, it's what we call the process model. And it is explained in three of my books for the general public. The first one in 2001 called Forgiveness is a Choice. It talks about this 20-step model that I'm going to speak about in a minute. Then the Forgiving Life which is 2012, and one called Eight Keys to Forgiveness that came out recently in 2015. And all of them talk about this 20-step process model of forgiveness. So here's the short version of that. First, you have to realize you have been treated unjustly, and you have pain. And the pain can be preoccupation, sleeplessness, fatigue, thinking over and over about the person. It can also mean you become more skeptical in life in general, where the glass is always half empty rather than half full because of the pain. But the first part is to understand that the injustice has affected you in ways you might not really have even understood. Then comes the question, if you're in this kind of pain... Would you like to think about forgiveness as a possibility for dealing with this person? That doesn't mean you're doing it for your own good only. It doesn't mean you're doing it as a psychotherapeutic technique only, although it can be that. But the pain gets your attention. And so the next step is, do you want to think about forgiveness as opposed to some other way to solve your pain? And if so... We go through the definition. You'd be not excusing the person. You won't be stopping justice. You'll try to be good to those that person. Do you really want to do this, or does this seem unusual to you? Are you ready for this? Because forgiveness is a choice. It should never be pressured or demanded. If the person says yes, we give them a homework assignment, which is this. I say, once you walk out of this session with me... Are you willing to commit to do no harm to the one who hurt you? 
I'm not saying love them. I'm not saying even respect them at this point. I'm just saying do no harm. Don't do the negative. Well, what if someone's already deceased? You can do a lot of harm to a person's reputation. So even if a person's deceased, you won't drag their name through the mud. And so the key is you're not going to go after them verbally. You're not going to tear them down to others. And that's a huge step, even though it's just the beginning. So when people are willing to do no harm, then we eventually start with the thinking exercises of who is this person who has hurt you? And we have three kinds of thinking perspectives that can take months. The personal, global, and cosmic perspective. Here's the personal perspective. Has this person wounded you, perhaps out of their own woundedness? Is it possible that they have been so wounded by others that their heart is so hurting, they're now transferring their woundedness to you? And I really learned that lesson from a man in what they call in the United States maximum security prison. His name is Orteal. He died recently and broke my heart. We became friends. And he said this to me on this personal perspective. Someone was on the hook, put me on the hook, and I put other people on the hook. And the idea is to see if there is a woundedness that is being transferred to you that you actually might be at risk for transferring to others. Is it possible not to excuse the person, but to think of them as a wounded human being? Then comes the global perspective. Global perspective talks about a shared humanity. And I say to people who want to forgive, I say, do you realize you do share a common humanity with this person? I don't care if you're a person of faith, an agnostic, an atheist, a humanist. I'm going to prove it to you right now. You share a common humanity. Do you have unique DNA, you, so that when you pass away, there'll never be another human being like you on the planet? Yes. Does that person have unique DNA where there's never going to be another human being like this person on the planet? Yes. Does this make you special, unique, and irreplaceable? Yes. What about the one who hurt you? If they're so unique, are they special, unique, and irreplaceable in this world? You share that with them. Now, then we get a little more philosophical on this global perspective, where I ask, do you have what we call built-in worth or inherent worth? where you have inestimable value just because of who you are? I hope your answer is yes. And if that's true, how about other people you know, your loved ones, your family, your friends, your community? Does each person there have worth? And if that's true, are you willing to think about the possibility that the one who hurt you has inherent or built-in worth that cannot be earned or taken away? Do you realize that you both share unique DNA? You're both special, unique, and irreplaceable, and you both have inherent worth. So when we put both of these together, the personal and global perspective, you share woundedness with the other. Your woundedness happened to come from them and theirs from somebody else, but you share woundedness and you share a common humanity. And then comes what we call the cosmic perspective. And this one was really pressed upon me by an emeritus professor at the University of Wisconsin by the name of Keith Yandell, Y-A-N-D-E-L-L. And he came to me one day and he said, you know, you really need a transcendent perspective to go along with this personal and global. I said, Keith, tell me more about it. And he said, well, people of faith need to bring that in to the forgiveness process. I said, tell me more about that. He said, well, let's say someone is Jewish or Christian. Open up the very first book of the Bible to Genesis 1. What is it telling you about humanity? Okay, I did my homework. Whoop. Made in the image and likeness of God. And he said, where else do you see that? 
Oh, again, repeated in the first chapter of Genesis. We're all made in the image and likeness of God. So in those who are forgiving, we ask the question, are you made in the image and likeness of God? And they, well, yes, okay. How about the one who hurt you? Drum roll, please. And it sometimes takes a while for that to really settle in. But when they realize that the other person is made in the image and likeness of God, well then, we have something important here. The Muslims, the Islamic faith, shares that with us. There is a book in the Quran called Joseph. And it is based, at least loosely, on the Joseph story in Genesis 37 to 45, where Joseph shows forgiveness toward his half-brothers. So the faiths, especially the monotheistic faiths, what they call the Abrahamic faiths, talk about this idea that we are all connected transcendentally, you see, spiritually, to one another as images of God. So when we put the personal, global, and cosmic perspectives together, which can take months of work, the person understands shared woundedness, shared common humanity, and shared being loved by God, which now induces compassion for the other, a little bit of a softened heart, taking a little bit of the hate away, a little bit of the resentment away. And then we ask the person when they get a little stronger to bear the pain so they don't throw it back to the other. Because, see, we can keep throwing pain back and forth. As Gandhi said, if we keep taking an eye for an eye, the whole world will be blind. So we want to, we want to stand in the pain. And as we stand in the pain, we become conduits of good toward the one who hurt us and toward our family toward whom we might take out our pain, even though they weren't the ones who injured us. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, last week I um, hosted a screening of the documentary I made, uh, and we interviewed um, two people. One is in the documentary, Beryl Quigley, who um, her husband was killed by the IRA um, in uh, 19, 1984. Uh, and the other person was Liam McCluskey, who uh, had been a hunger striker in the Mays prison at the time when Beryl's husband would have been the assistant governor of the prison. So, um, and interestingly, I had met them at a previous screening in Derry and, and, and Liam had introduced himself at the end and they had realized that their lives had been connected, you know, that at one point Beryl's husband had been a governor of the prison that Liam had, had been on hunger strike in. Um, and Liam's own journey was, he tell both of them had a, had a experience. He, when he was recovering from hunger strike, 55 days on the hunger strike in 1981, and Beryl, moments after her husband was killed, both of them had an experience of uh, praying the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father and coming to that part where it says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And what struck me as I talked to both of them was they both had this, they had found empathy. They had found the they they asked the question, what would it be like to be the other person? And they had compassion for the other people. Um, for Liam, he said, not only was it the saying the Our Father, but it was also the prayer of St. Francis, particularly, you know, make me a channel of your peace, particularly the part where it says, help me to understand as much as to be understood. And he thought, what would it be like to, he thought, I need to understand the British soldiers. He hated the British. He had been in the Bloody Sunday March. He had, where people had been shot, and that really was his doorway into the Republican movement. Um, and he and he began to ask the question, what would it be like to be a young British soldier? And he thought, well, you'd probably be afraid. You'd be away from your family. And, and I was struck as both of them shared their stories. They were just really sharing about empathy. And I suppose that's a, a very important part of forgiveness, I guess. That's right. See, when you take these personal, global, and cosmic perspectives, that's a intellectual exercise, but the intellectual exercise makes its way down to the heart. And when you start seeing the person much more broadly than only their actions against you, the heart starts to soften. A philosopher in England, Joanna North, talked about the softened heart. And that is empathy, that is compassion, where you see the other's pain and you react to it. 
And when you forgive and you really want to exercise it on its deepest level, which is the virtuous, the morally virtuous response, you then want to help them out of the pit. And they might not come, they might not take your hand, but at least you're offering it because you see their pain, you see their how their lives have been damaged by their own actions. And so it's not about me, it's about them. And it's about reaching out to them after having empathy. And that's where the being good to those who aren't being good to you takes full flower, where you are now concerned about them in their humanity and in the growing of your humanity of their humanity. And the hope is that your forgiveness might lead them to a deeper humanity than ever might have been the case without you having mm. forgiven them. So it seems for, for me, um, you set the bar in a good way, quite high in the sense. And what I mean by that, I suppose, is that I suppose I've heard a lot of people, myself included, talk about forgiveness. And I think a lot of our time, we're trying to make it accessible for people and doable. Um, the, and so we'd use phrases like forgiveness is releasing yourself from prison. And so in a sense, it's you can almost d describe it in almost like a selfish way, you know, which I suppose is, is true. But it seems like what you describe is not just about this is good for you, but actually it's a, we're calling you to something difficult where you're being called to actually love people who have hurt you. You're, we're causing you, calling you to, uh, is that right? To, yes, to something that is right. That you can't just stay and I'll, I'll let go of the, anger, the, the bitterness so I can have a better life. It's, right. You're moving into a deeper level of actually I'm going to yes. choose the best for this other person. See, I make a distinction between the consequences of forgiving and what forgiveness is. A paradoxical consequence is when I bear the pain for the other, when I reach out to the other, who in terms of justice doesn't necessarily deserve it, but I do it out of a sense of mercy and forgiveness is centered in mercy. I am doing this for them with the paradox is I am the one who's healed. And so the surprising thing is, and this is where forgiveness gets wildly controversial, people say, why would I ever want to reach out to them after what they've done to me? Well, those who try it, maybe on a smaller level rather than the level of the troubles, maybe just some difficulty in the family that's easily solved, they realize that they have more inner quiet. They're set free from the nagging doubt and thinking and kind of carrying it on their back. And then they can maybe move on to the tougher things of forgiveness. But when I work with people in forgiving, I use an, an athletic analogy. If someone's out of shape, we don't ask them to run a marathon. We ask them to walk around the block a few times. So they forgive people for lighter things, but they can move up and forgive people for whom many would say what they've done is unforgivable. Mm. Maybe not. Mm. And um, as what I've heard you describe uh, before is that as you've taught forgiveness and well as... and. Um, as forgiveness is taught in a, through the form of a school curriculum, etc., or in a prison, um, you measure particularly levels of anger, anxiety, and depression. Is that right? That's can, correct. Can you share some of the your findings in the in the uh, regarding those three areas: anger, anxiety, and depression? And that is our third question from the Friday Forgiveness <laughs> Seminar. What is forgiveness? How do you go about it? Which we've covered. And now, what happens when you do forgive? Mm. We look at the paradox. We look at those who've gone through the process of the personal, global, and cosmic perspective, reached out to the other with compassion and empathy, borne the pain, given a gift to the other, which is a smile, maybe a return phone call, a text that they have shunned them on. And then once we go through that 20-step process, it can take months. We assess people relative to those who have not gone through forgiveness and here's what we find. First of all, we choose people for these research programs who are not forgiving. Uh, one classic example would be Suzanne Friedman's, F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N, Suzanne Friedman's study of incest survivors, one of the greatest injustices of the world, where a father or father figure who's supposed to be protect, protective violates. And 12 women came to her. 
And she asked six of them to go through a forgiveness program. And they said, I'm going to mess up your study. Are you sure you want me? I'll never forgive him. She said, come anyway. The six went through the program. The other six were the control group and waited. Suzanne worked with them on all these kinds of steps we've just gone through until they themselves said, I have forgiven. And on the average, it took 14 months once a week for an hour. But after that, their forgiveness went from very low, we have a forgiveness scale, to the middle. They didn't go high. They were not perfect forgivers, but they moved about 50% of the way on the scale, and it made all the difference. They ended up liking themselves, where before they didn't like themselves. People who've been brutalized by others don't like themselves. I wish that weren't the case, but I see it over and over. They came to us clinically depressed, and that means a lot of depression, a lot of sadness that isn't just sadness, but is weighing them down where they can't function well. They actually went to non-depressed status. It's not that they just moved in depression. The depression stopped after 14 months. And their anxiety went to normal levels. And of course, their anger, they still had some residual anger because the forgiveness wasn't perfect, but their anger was no longer controlling them. Then the other six started the program, about 14 months. They were still clinically depressed. After the forgiveness program with the next group, they also were non-depressed, and their anxiety returned to normal, and they liked themselves. Because you see, they see that they have inherent worth. They see that they are people worthy of respect as they're trying to respect the other. But what happened to the first group that are now hanging around for 14 months without forgiveness therapy? They were still non-depressed. And we see this in drug rehabilitation. We have seen this with children as young as nine years old in Belfast, Northern Ireland, who go through curricula based on stories, and they see story characters forgive. And they went from being close to clinically angry to not angry at all, and their depression went down. I remember doing a, a workshop, or you led a workshop a number of years ago, um, uh, a forgiveness workshop, and, and during it there was a question about, the, about anger, um, which I thought was a good question. I thought your answer was very good. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to be able to replicate it 15 <laughs> years later. But, um, but I guess the question was something like, um, anger can sometimes times be good you know we can have a, a, an anger at injustice uh, there can be um, you know even in, in, for those of a faith background in, in, the, in the scriptures bible uh, god is described as angry at times angry at injustice angry at things and uh, i suppose i what i can vaguely remember is you making a distinction between a kind of a, a corrosive anger that kind of abides in you in you and kind of pulls you down and, and a kind of a constructive anger that doesn't necessarily last forever. Can, can you unpack a little bit about that? Because I think people yes. would ask that. When we're treated unfairly, anger is a natural response because it's basically saying, you don't have a right to treat me this way. And so it's showing I know I'm a person of worth and I know you're a person of worth because you shouldn't be doing this to me. This kind of anger is good because it's a signal to myself and others that we need to really talk with one another and be with one another person to person. But psychology and psychiatry make a distinction between the early healthy anger that ends and what we call toxic anger or resentment or what the field of psychiatry calls irritability, which is more ongoing and it's deep. I call it anger on steroids, where you are so angry, it becomes a part of you. It becomes a part of your life. You live with it. And when you wake up in the morning, you have it and you are short with others, short tempered with others. And it almost becomes a lifestyle that research shows us can kill us literally with high blood pressure, uh, immune system 
malfunctioning, uh, it, more infections. Research has actually shown this. Uh, this kind of anger is connected to certain kinds of cancers even. Forgiveness actually targets this kind of unhealthy anger or resentment and cures it. So forgiveness actually is a cure for the unhealthy anger that can lead to physical anomalies and psychological challenges such as anxiety and depression. And that's why forgiveness is so important, Johnny, because with the medical model of treatment these days, if someone comes in to a mental health professional with anxiety, there's a tendency to treat the anxiety itself, which forgiveness therapy would call it more of a symptom, in many cases, a symptom of abiding anger, the irritability, the resentment that is born out of unjust treatment. And if we never look backwards in time far enough, we never get to the cause. And if we don't get to the cause, we don't get to the cure of the anxiety. So we're always treating the symptom without going back. And it's not always the case. But when we find people who've been crushed by the injustice of others, and they have become very, very angry, anxiety, and depression and physical challenges often come on board. So when we turn people back far enough in their history, we have a cure for that, and it's called forgiveness. Um, so I just wonder, I, I know that we've used a, a kind of five-step process that you've helped to develop. We've used it here and also in Lebanon and different parts of the world. Um, uh, how would you kind of summarize in, in what are these kind of five steps that you see as a kind of a summary of your approach? Sure. This is a consolidation of the process models, 20 steps. First, you acknowledge the injustice in your anger. You then decide to forgive and know what it is. You then begin to see the other in new ways, especially the inherent worth, soften your heart, and then do good somehow to the other where you live from your best self, helping the other to be their best mm. self. Oh, that's great. And I've heard you've used the phrase, um, leave a legacy of love. Is that that's is right? That, yeah. Leave the legacy of love is talked about mostly in my book, The Forgiving Life, because really when we've been treated unfairly by others, most people aren't aware of this, but we enter a crossroads of either leaving more anger in this world when we're gone or leaving more love in this world when we're gone. And people don't even realize that the anger they have that they can place upon their children could grow in their children so that anger is in your children's children's children and there's something alive from you that is still in the world a hundred years from now. But if you are now kind and gentle and loving through forgiveness, even though the world would say, don't you dare, you can pass on to others more love in this world. And we might as well start today, because if you think about it, literally a hundred years from now, the love you share with others today could be living in the hearts of those you leave behind. And it's worth taking seriously because when you live a forgiving life, you embody forgiveness. You take it on. It becomes part of you. You're happy to forgive. It's part of your identity. You are leaving love in the world. And that is your legacy. And it's a lot better than leaving a million pounds to mm. charity, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, it's funny, every time you talk, I think of spin-off questions. We could spend uh, hours here talking about this subject. Um, but uh, one, the question that comes to my mind, I suppose, is a, um, is a question about uh, kind of justice. And, uh, you know, I would, there would be areas in, in the world where I would feel very strongly about injustice and the need to speak out. And I think sometimes people would hear conversation about forgiveness and doing good to people to harm almost as a way to put down that fight. I think of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and, you know, his his quest to see uh, civil rights um, in uh, America. And at the time, there were people kind of saying, uh, maybe, Martin, you don't need to push this so far, you know, the marches and the walks and the confrontational methods where he was really, he, he wasn't going to kind of sit back in a passive way. He was, he was really confronting injustice. How do you see that fits with, um, 
with forgiveness in the sense that I, I guess what you're calling people is is not to the passive life. Um, you know, you could be a passionate justice warrior for a particular uh, issue, but can you do that and still be a forgiver? Can you be Martin Luther King, kind of you know, standing on a bridge and saying, "I'm not going to, I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to." Can you still do that and be a forgiver? Do you know what I mean? I think it's very interesting that you mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. because one of my favorite books is his called Strength to Love. And he talks about forgiveness all over that book. When his own home was being firebombed and his family was being threatened with death. And so he's a perfect example of the blending of justice and forgiveness so that justice does not become imbalanced. Isn't it very easy to pick up a rock when you have hate in your heart? You could still stand there on the protest line, but you won't pick up the rock because you know there's a human being on the other side. And so forgiveness helps you stand there, gives you more energy, and actually helps you to fight as fairly as you can, where you might get a better justice than you had had you not put forgiveness into the equation. Look at Nelson Mandela. He was 20 years in Robin prison. When he gave his inaugural address, you know who was there? His jailer. And he put him in a place of honor. He didn't use the word forgiveness, but he was showing it by having his jailer there rather than banishing him from the ceremony. So we do have these kinds of examples where justice alone can become intemperate or justice with forgiveness, even if you don't call it that, but mm. show that, can lead to a greater unity and maybe a greater justice than we would ever have thought possible. Okay. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually a beautiful way of putting it there. So it's a, we can continue to strive for causes which we feel are deeply important, but do so in a way uh, with a motivation to actually better the people who yeah. are standing against. And let them. me give you an example of those who reject forgiveness. I have given 14 talks in the Middle East. Guess how many times I've been yelled at with, while talking about forgiveness? 14. And the people, not everyone in the audience, but many people give me a two-word sentence, justice first. And they will say to me, I will not entertain the idea of forgiveness until I get justice. And at that point, I give people a multiple choice test, A or B, which do you choose? A, you will never get the justice you want in your lifetime, and you will live with a resentment that could be passed to your children and kill you. Or B, you will never get the justice ever in your lifetime that you desire, but you will be free of the toxicity of the resentment that can destroy individuals, families, and communities. Which do you choose? Usually, people who yell at me will then choose B, and it at least gives them pause that there might be more than justice by itself. And that's what I think we need. We need to change the conversation when we are striving for justice and ask about humanizing the other and then still standing firm with your quest for justice. Mm. That's really good. Um, I wonder if we could just take, we could talk a long time and we could go on um, uh, about a lot of these uh, subjects, but maybe just take a little bit of time more biographically to kind of paint how you've then used your research to actually make a tangible impact. So um, we've been really blessed as Youth of the Mission for a season and since 2002 to to work with you and helping to bring uh, curriculums of forgiveness to schools all over the city of Belfast. And uh, now John and Leah Judge are part of our team here in Belfast and they um, they're part of kind of facilitating the work that you've done and bringing it into schools where teachers teach it. So you've you've brought it into schools, uh, you've brought it into prisons uh, and other areas. What are some of, how did it start in Belfast? Or what was the... 
Well, I was a slow learner. Remember, I started this in 1985, where we had forgiveness therapy as what we call remediation. Once people are crushed by injustice, how do we help them to become more resilient by getting rid of their resentment? And we've seen, as we've talked about with Suzanne Friedman's work and others, when they go through forgiveness therapy, you can cure the resentment. But that's not preventive work. And so after having been studying forgiveness for a couple of decades, I thought, what about prevention? What can we do to help people to be fortified with forgiveness before the storms of life really hit them so that they then have forgiveness as a tool so they're not destroyed by injustice? I thought, well, education. If the point of education is to help prepare children for the future by helping them balance a checkbook and read and write, why aren't we preparing them to confront the injustices that we all invariably have in life? And that answer is, to me, which was we're not doing that, is stunning. Because if I had my choice of teaching mathematics or forgiveness in a school, let's say we were in in an alternative universe where we couldn't do both, I would choose forgiveness. Why? Not knowing how to balance your checkbook won't kill you. Not knowing how to climb out of the pit of resentment could kill you and destroy your family. And I've seen it happen, okay? I've seen people die early of stress-related causes because they don't know how to forgive. So we thought, Let's build curricula for children. Where to start? English speaking, because I'm rather illiterate otherwise. Belfast is one of the first ports of call from the United States. We have two groups that will understand forgiveness. And they definitely have been having a great challenge for hundreds of years. So we've said Belfast. So we got in touch with uh, a woman who's now deceased, Ann Gallagher, and she introduced us to different principals. Claire Hillman, now retired from Ligonier School, was our first. And Claire will tell you that the parents at first were not on board with the idea until they realized we weren't talking of politics here. We're talking about helping the children learn to deal with one another in their own conflicts in the school. If they're pushed down or if someone bumps into them or steals their homework. And then the parents were all on board. And so we started teaching. We didn't. We trained the teachers. And we saw, as we had said, anger goes down and even depression goes down. And so then we expanded into Liberia, Africa. We're in Athens, Thessaloniki, Greece, Corinth, Greece. Uh, We're in Bethlehem in Palestine. Uh, We're in the Philippines. We have a set of curriculum guides now from age four to age 18. And educators in now over 30 countries are using these materials to help children and adolescents learn about what forgiveness is and how to go about it so that you know, I'd take it away from them if I could, the injustices hit these young people, they will have a a new unique response. And so from there, we thought, well, why don't we go to what we call the disenfranchised of the world? And I started studying rehabilitation in prisons. Almost all of the rehabilitation in prisons in the United States focuses on the behavior that got the person arrested and incarcerated and get them to feel empathy toward the one they've hurt so that they will change their behavior. My thought is, if you're so wounded by others having wounded you, you're not going to care about rehabilitation. You see, if I have a throbbing knee and you come to educate me about anything, I'm not going to hear you very well until you take care of my throbbing knee. If you have a wounded heart, a crushed heart, rehabilitation in prison is not going to be effective until we heal the heart. 
So we did a study at a maximum, meaning in the United States, they've done very bad things, security prison. And we looked at over 100 men. What percentage of them have had severe injustices against them, perpetrated on them prior to their crime, their arrest, and their imprisonment? What percentage do you think? 90%, okay? Almost all of them have had deep injustices against them. It's not being addressed. It is now, because now we're in the process of doing forgiveness therapy, and I get a lot of letters from men in prison who are are now engaging in forgiveness therapy, and they say it's the only thing that worked for me, because first of all, you are acknowledging my pain, you're acknowledging what I've gone through, you're acknowledging my humanity, which is making me more receptive toward others. Uh, Here's just one quick story. One man was in prison, maximum security, because he shot and killed his whole family. And the first day of forgiveness therapy, the therapist said, tell us what happened to you. Tell us your story of your being hurt by others. And this man, who's a mass murderer, started crying. And the therapists were taken aback. Here's this big, tough guy who's been in there for 20 years. And they asked, why are you crying? And he said, nobody's ever asked me that. What's your story? Well, when I was a child, he said, my father would make me crawl on my hands and knees on the gravel road to get the mail out of the mailbox whenever I was acting badly and crawl back again. And my clothes would be in tatters and I'd be bruised and I'd be humiliated. And he made me do that over and over and over until... At 16, I was strong enough to pick up my father's hunting rifle, and I shot and killed all of them. That's the resentment, Johnny, you and I are talking about. That's the hatred that builds up. That's the kind of anger that literally can kill. Had this boy had forgiveness education where he could start forgiving his father— the rage would have lessened. Had his father engaged in forgiveness from whomever wounded him, and he must have had deep wounds as well, never uncovered. You know, the whole family would be alive today. But now we're at least being able to rehabilitate his heart. It's the same thing. We think now we're just making inroads into Edinburgh, uh, Scotland, with people without homes, Not all of them will have a story of being crushed, but for those who do, you see that might be the little something extra to give them a little bit more hope, to give them a little bit more energy to get off the street. Because when I walk up to people who are sitting there with the cup near the Royal Mile, and there are a lot of people who do that, uh, just recently, the gentleman said, I lost my job. And I didn't deserve it. And I'm stuck. Well, if he could forgive his employer, maybe he could stand up, you see. And again, when I look at the rehabilitation in homelessness, almost 100% of the intervention is to get them a home. And that's great. I'm not knocking that. But if you come into the home with a gravely wounded heart, you won't be able to stay in the home. You see, we're not asking to overthrow typical rehabilitation in prison or in the homelessness way. We're asking to add forgiveness. It's the same thing in the peace movement. We're not asking the quest for justice to be abandoned. We're asking that forgiveness be added. That's really my message in life. Let us add forgiveness at the kitchen table with families, in schools, in prisons, in those sitting very in a very lonely way against a stone wall in Edinburgh or Belfast, where I notice people pass them. It must be very lonely. Maybe one out of a hundred give. They must feel very, very disenfranchised. Forgiveness might give them their life back. It's forgiveness and, not forgiveness or. Mm. Thanks, 
Bob, for your uh, years of investment in Belfast and, and now around the world, and uh, we've certainly benefited from it. And I hope the people listening, um, you, you know, there's so much in what you've shared. Um, it, it hopefully it will it will pique their interest to to go to dig further. What would be some resources that we could find in terms of forgiveness, like books or online? Or yes. Well, we have the International Forgiveness Institute website internationalforgiveness.com and that has our curriculum materials it also talks about the books the books are available at amazon.co.uk mm-hmm. uh, the books for general public books for mental health professionals and so really it's really the books and the curriculum guides that should help people from age four to age 104. Mm. Oh, 144. <laughs> people are living longer these yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's lots of resources. Internationalforgiveness.com. Yes. Um, and there'll be a way to, to contact uh, Professor Robert Enright there. Um, thanks so much for the that interview. I, I feel like we could do a follow-up and a part three and part four. Uh, but for now, that's uh, that's a great beginning. And uh, thanks again, Bob, for your investment here. And thank you, Johnny, for all you do. Your work is very important. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.